Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we're joined by Delane Parnell. Delane is the founder and CEO of Playverses, which is building the infrastructure for the fast-growing field of high school and college esports. Here's Delane. I'm Ravi Balani, and I'd like to welcome you to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar presented by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center, and Stanford's School of Engineering, and BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. I'm a lecturer in the MSD department and the director of Alchemist and Accelerator for Enterprise Startups. So Delane, <laughs> just to kick things off, since all of us are not familiar with esports, can you start by explaining a bit about what Playverses does for those who've, who haven't heard about Playverses yet? Sure. Yeah, and so Playverses is a, a Los Angeles-based esports startup uh, that has built um, the official statewide and regional leagues around high school esports um, and the official um, national leagues for many games uh, at the collegiate level. And so we power um, high school and college leagues um, for a bunch of different video games. And what that looks like is, you know, kids are able to play uh, League of Legends, let's say, on behalf of their school or their high school or college uh, for state or national championship, depending on if it's the high school or college level, um, as they would basketball or football. And that's all powered um, through software that we build at Playverses. Isn't that cool? Um, and this is not just small local sports, even though it is creating this amazing community. It's also a big business, Delane. So how much have you guys have also raised? It's a venture-backed business, just so yeah. people understand. How much capital, venture capital have you raised? Yeah, so we've raised over $100 million, uh, in the past two and a half years. Um, uh, I started the company January 2018. So we've only been in existence for the past two and a half years, but uh, over $100 million from some really great investors. And, uh, you know, we, I like to say that you get a point for fundraising, you get, you know, 10 points for um, building users and 100 points for building an amazing and enduring community. But fundraising is sort of a necessary part to build these movements that you are. That's got to be one of the shortest, you know, unicorn puberty periods to going from zero to, to um, 100 million raise in just two years. And we'll, we'll dig into that in a bit. Um, but before we dive into play versus... You also have this amazing background as a serial entrepreneur, starting businesses even when you were a teenager. Teenager, can you share more about that background and where your motivation and drive came from? So yeah, early on, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so uh, you know, I was born and raised um, on the west side of Detroit, raised by a single mother, um, and uh, my mom and my aunt, and I had a cousin who uh, named Juan who who passed away um, maybe a decade ago. Um, they they all used to, um, you know encouraged me um, to do, you know, different hustles, right, and kind of entrepreneurial endeavors, even as I was a kid. And my aunt, in fact, her name is Olivia. Um, she used to purchase me uh, magazines, uh, like business magazines, Inc. Magazine, Forbes Magazine. Uh, she would encourage me to read them, and I would. And then I would do deep dives um, about everything that was interesting that I read. Um, and, uh, and from there, I just sort of had this bug, uh, uh, you know, for entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I would do, um, you know, my brother and I for several years had a lawn care business um, called D&D. Uh, we still argue about who was the true founder and CEO, of D &D, <laughs> but, but truthfully, it was me all along. <laughs> uh, we, uh, uh, you know, I, I had a, a business where I would download music and put it on flash drives for local DJs, uh, and they would pay me a weekly retainer to do so, and that was a pretty profitable business for me. Um, and uh, eventually, you know, my mom... Um, 
you know, like she wanted me and my brother to both have summer jobs to stay out of the neighborhood. We lived in a pretty violent neighborhood. And, uh, and so uh, my brother worked at this meatpacking place. And then I ended up working at the cell phone store and the owner of the cell phone store took me under his wing, taught me the business. Eventually I left. I went to own my own cell phone stores, this car rental worked in venture. Um, now I'm here. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, sort of started at this early age, um, you know, mostly as, you know, from a catalyst standpoint, um, because of my mom and my, my aunt and my cousin. Well, it's amazing how necessity can be the mother of invention and also just the catalyst for bringing out what's already inside you. You're, and, and for everybody, so Delane, how old are you right now? I'm 28. I just turned 28. You're 28. Um, and, 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 and that may seem young, everybody, but really, I think Delane's been an entrepreneur actually for 15 plus years um, with wow. everything that you've done. It's a long journey. It's a long journey. And, and Delane, I want to just, um, just double click into this a little bit more because this, it's, it's rare to have people with that path. Some, there's some schools of thought that say that there's a difference between little E entrepreneurship and big E entrepreneurship. Little E entrepreneurship being, being like side hustles and, and, and starting um, sort of um, local businesses versus big E entrepreneurship, which is you know, these venture-backed unicorns that you create. Is that a false distinction? Do you think it is the same thread across both? Or do you think there is actually a fundamental difference between doing what you were doing earlier on and what you're doing now? Yeah, I wouldn't give significance to um, little or big E in front of uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, I think both are still pretty significant. And in fact, you know, small businesses happen to be the backbone of our country uh, in many ways. And so, um, uh, you know, while, while, I, while I like to, to acknowledge that, you know, entrepreneurship across the board, whether small or big, is tough. Um, uh, there is some, you know, distinction between uh, the two types of businesses. Uh, they just require different skill sets, um, uh, and uh, um, and and you know, and that that mostly comes with with skill. And it's skill. So you think it's you know the difference is just knowing what those skills are um, is is the, is the main difference between the two, or is it is it something that is based on um, attitude think, or approach? I, I know, no, I know tons of um, you know small business owners who maybe own a handful of restaurants who are some of the most phenomenal, um, you know, entrepreneurs, most driven, passionate, um, uh, you know, capable entrepreneurs that I know. Um, and uh, that's just, you know, that just ends up being the, the type of business that they're excited about. And the, that level of scale is something that they're excited about. And so um, if they were to go out and start a tech company, um, or, in, or any sort of venture-backed company, I'm sure they'd be just as successful as, as I am, if not more successful. And so, um, so yeah, I, think, uh, I don't think that there's a level of capability. I think that, you know, most entrepreneurs who, who find success even, you know, by owning some mom-and-pop retail shops, you know, are likely, if, if they had an interest, um, could find success running a tech company. And was there, where, was there a moment when you realized that this is not just a hustle with Play Versus, that this is actually something much bigger? And when, when was that moment? And, and can you just go into detail about that? Well, specifically with Play Versus, I never, um, I never thought about it as a, as a big business opportunity. Um, you know, at the beginning, I, you know, I sort of had this, and I, I hate when people say, oh, I had this problem I wanted to solve, because it really wasn't a problem, but I had a niche um, that I wanted to scratch around, um, you know, building out infrastructure around esports, just because I, I knew there was a lot of conversation around esports, but there wasn't um, you know, uh, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of businesses being built that I felt, um, you know, truly captured the essence of, you know, why people play video games and had the opportunity uh, um, to unlock, you know, what I think some of the, you know, the, um, 
you know, the biggest sort of areas of the space are from an enterprise value standpoint. And so, um, uh, you know, I wanted to do that. Like, I, it wasn't that, um, you know, I wanted to build this massive business. I recognized that I needed to build a lot of value to, um, um, you know, through revenue, through um, relationships. Um, and it would become a big business, but I wasn't driven by that. Um, I was, you know, mostly just, you know, um, you know, focused on um, uh, on solving a problem around people are talking about esports, but there's no infrastructure online for people to play against each other. Um, how do I do that? Where should I start? Um, what's my scarcest resource? The scarcest resource for me ended up being these publisher relationships. So how do you go and work with the publishers and get and get them to commit to the to develop APIs to give you access to enable that online play? Um, and then how do I capture value for them and give that back to them so they feel like it's a fair exchange? And that ended up being um, the reason why, you know, we uh, committed our business to, you know, going to market at high school um, because uh, the publishers were investing tons of money, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in the top of funnel um, for them, which is, you know, their, uh, their uh, professional leagues. And, uh, and they, they weren't really thinking about the rest of the pyramid. Um, and so, uh, so, you know, we went to them and said, hey, what if we, what if we create an environment where we train um, your athletes um, or these players to become, you know, esports athletes for your game? Um, commit to having them play in the exact same format that you want them to play uh, with coaches and with the recognition from, you know, the high school governance system um, where, you know, it's treated as a sport as any other, you know, traditional sport. And that was really appealing to, to, to publishers. And so um, they gave us a shot and now we've, you know, obviously taken that and, and, um, and scaled that and, and also introduced uh, the same sort of environment at the collegiate level. This is such an important lesson. And, you know, there are some questions coming in and I want to, I'll get into these questions a little bit later, but just to clarify, Play Versus is a for-profit. It's not a nonprofit. There's some people that are asking that. We'll yeah. get into the Play Versus model in a bit. Yeah, so we're, we're, I, we're not yeah. a nonprofit, we're for-profit. And, and, and we'll get into those details in, in a bit, but I want to just um, uh, really relish this, this, this one lesson here, which is what a unicorn looks like when you're just starting out. So when you were starting out, uh, you didn't conceive of it as being a unicorn when you began. The impetus of what you just really saw was that there was just this need. And did it feel like the same as the other sort of side hustles that you had before? Did it feel like another side hustle that you had done? Oh, and- it was scarier, truthfully, um, because, you know, the... The stuff I'd done before, like the retail um, brick and mortar businesses, those felt like surefire. Hey, people want cell phones. Metro PCS is new to this market. It's uh, it's creating this sort of affordable, um, you know, cell phone option where there's no contract, low barrier to entry uh, in terms of getting started. Um, and uh, you know, and uh, and people were really excited about that. And so, find a location with strong foot traffic in some plaza. Um, open up business and, you know, people come in um, and uh, it just sort of felt like it would be successful just given some of those dynamics. Um, when I started Play Versus, I had no clarity uh, as to, um, you know, if what I was doing would work out. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there was just a lot of moving pieces. It's a business where the foundation is, you know, built around relationships, relationships with several multi-billion dollar entities whom, you know, we have to get to care about what we're doing and see value in what we're doing for them to give us the rights to commercialize, you know, their basically their biggest and most valuable asset, which is their games. Um, in this new category called esports, where not many venture investors, um, you know, were putting dollars at the yeah. time or even, you know, understanding um, what esports is or was or, um, and even at the publisher level, they were also still trying to figure out their competency. Then, 
you know, from a distribution side, we also had to go to the NFHS and convince them to, to uh, give us access into all of their high schools. And that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, those are 70, 80 year old, you know, white men that were trying to say, Hey, you know what, we know you love football in Texas, but make video <laughs> game high school sport. You know, that's, uh, that was a unique in itself. Um, so, and you, uh, and you didn't, even in your own mind's eye, you didn't have the vision of what it would become. Did yeah, you? No, look, like, no. Um, and, uh, yeah. I, I wanted I to just make that clear. I, when, I just didn't think that far alone. I yeah. didn't think I just was, I was day to day on, Hey, here are the sort of three core components. Um, here's the thing I need to focus on for each of them. Maybe it was one or two things. And then I just like, you know, honed in on that. And then what was the thread that kept you going day after day? If you didn't know where I had no other option. Yeah. Look, I had no other option. I moved from Detroit to LA taking a risk to come build this business. I committed a year of time to say, Hey, if this doesn't work out in a year, I'm going to do something else. Um, whether it be in LA or somewhere else. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, gave myself my, I gave, I, I had to, I told myself that, you know, I would, I would commit to this year to figure this out. I understood, um, you know, what the sort of fundamental pieces, the business were, um, and day in and day out, I just worked against that until, uh, until it all came together. But there was, there was truthfully, you know, five or six months when, um, throughout the process, uh, when, you know, I didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. I was, I was pretty sure. And I think people around me were sure that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to get a business off the ground. And do you have now looking back in retrospect, is there, is there, you know, there's lots of founders that have that same journey, but very few founders actually succeed or take off. Is, was there, is there something that you attribute your success to now, if it wasn't necessarily having this clear vision about where things were going to go and having full transparency into that? Sure. Was it something process or, or um, process extreme focus. Or extreme focus. I think uh, I was, uh, I don't think I've ever been more focused than that, you know, that first year, um, truthfully. Um, you know, I moved to LA basically knowing not many people. Um, all I did was go to work and go home. And even when I went home, I had a mattress and then my entire living room was, uh, was a replica of what my office looked like um, at the science building. So that's, chair, same desk, same chair, same monitor, whiteboard. Um, and, uh, and it was basically all work, no play for me. And so, um, uh, you know, I was extremely focused on, uh, on learning the industry, um, you know, developing a product, talking to um, players, talking to educators, talking to publishers, talking to state associations, talking to, you know, um, uh, people who would become future employees, um, just trying to figure out how we could fit into the space. Uh, and build a business. And during that time, by the way, that first year, I, I, I guess the first, you know, eight or nine months, I never talked to investors. Um, you know, most people sort of come up with an idea, they do some initial work, and then they immediately try to start talking to investors to quote unquote, build relationships to, for a potential future raise. Um, I spent zero time thinking about raising capital or talking to investors. I was super focused on um, putting the core of the business together and, and building from there, um, not, not raising a, a round. And, and, and you were glad you did that, obviously, just to, that was the right call. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, yeah. I, you know, I, it was, there was no other option for me. This was, uh, I had a, I a compressed timeline and, um, and, uh, and I had to track against that. And did you give yourself a short-term goal? Did you say at this point, I, I know you referenced a year before, but was there something in your mind where you, you, you were almost your own governing body where you said, you know, at this point in time, I'm either going to take off or kill what I'm doing? Yeah, no, look, in, in a year, I, I figured, look, the business had to be off the ground. And so yeah. um, it had to be a real thing. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, we didn't even have an entity at, the, at that point. It was just like, hey, 
whatever the core of the business is, um, which I defined as distribution, IP, and product. Those were the things that I need to build against. So on the distribution side, I needed effective distribution into high schools. Um, and I found that through the NFHS and state association. So I needed to get that contract signed on the publisher side or the IP side. I needed to sign deals with publishers and I needed those publishers to develop um, resources to build APIs that would actually enable online play. And then on the, the product side, like I needed to, to hire engineers and, you know, product, product managers and designers, et cetera, product team to, to, you know, build the product. And then we, we needed to like take the product to market um, or at least get market feedback from the product. And so, um, you know, that was sort of the objective and I just focus um, wholly on that. And was there a moment in that first year when you realized now I'm, you hit the inflection point that actually this was going to take off and what yeah. was that moment? So it was uh, November of uh, 2017 before we'd even actually started the company. I went down to Atlanta to meet with the NFHS um, and uh, the meeting was supposed to be 30 minutes. And I think it ended up going like two hours, two and a half hours. Uh, we walked out, uh, you know, so during that meeting, you know, because the meeting continued to go over, you know, you know I could tell that they were really excited. And, you know, obviously I, I started to get very excited myself because I'm like, hey, there's there's an opportunity here. But at the end of the meeting, they said, hey, you know how the school business is. This could take, you know, two years. I think, you know, we're looking to make a decision within the next year. And so every everything, you know, during the meeting, you know, um, uh, you know, all of our conversation made me assume that they were going to make a decision shortly after this meeting. But then at the end of the meeting, they say, hey, you know, this could take two years. We're looking to make our decision within the next year. And so I was pretty deflated. Got in the car, went to the airport, you know, got on the plane. And when I landed, um, I ended up having a, a note from them not long after, maybe a day or two after, um, uh, that said, hey, you know, we, we, we've never done this before, but we want to do this partnership with you guys. Uh, let's hop on the call and figure it out. And we, we hopped on the call. We figured out the details. Um, and so... Uh, so from there, I was like, hey, you know, we're starting to, we're starting to see some light. And, and it still almost died because we were in diligence on that partnership. And a couple of the publishers that we also needed to partner with, um, um, you know, they had teams internally to also land that partnership because they were trying to build their own uh, footprint in high schools specific to their IP or the IP that they held if it was multiple, you know, games. And, um, and so when they heard that the NFHS had decided to partner with us, you know, they were very upset because they're like, hey, this is a one person company and we're this massive company with all of these resources. But they didn't understand, um, you know, why it didn't make sense for the NFHS to align themselves to one publisher, which is counter to their tradition. And so, um, you know, for a second, we alienated that group, um, which was core to our business. So even if we had the NFHS, even if we had a strong product, if we didn't have IP, then we had no games to plug in. And so I had to earn their trust back and build relationship there. Um, and that took a little bit of time, but you know, it ended up working out. Um, and, uh, and I made the bet, um, that, uh, that, the you know, if I signed the NFHS, if I built the product and I had clear vision, the publishers will ultimately get on board because this is an inevitable opportunity. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah. And so it, uh, it ended up working out, but there were, there was a lot of ups and downs even throughout that process. Yep. No, that's so good. Um, you, I, you know, obviously, all's well that ends well, and, and the, the whole um, adventure has been terrific. But is there, if it, would you give your former self any piece of advice um, now looking back on that whole journey when it, things got born? Yeah, look, I think um, some of the decisions I probably uh, reflect back on and wish that I would have done differently is, um, you know, I would have hired, I would have added um, more debt to our organization from an ops standpoint um, sooner. You know, we, we this year we just you know hired a COO 
and built out basically um, an apps team, a growth team, a regional apps team. We were pretty product and inch um, driven group prior to that. And I'd always sort of, you know, um, you know, reluctantly resisted, I guess not even reluctantly, but resisted hiring, you know, ops talent because we were so um, product and inch focused and BD focused to get, you know, rights and APIs to then build this product and then, you know, capture um, relationships with states to be able to even introduce esports into their state. And I felt like there had to be, there was a, there would be a tipping point where that, those things would be further, far enough along where then we could add ops talent um, um, in that level of like depth and maturity to the organization that would, you know, allow us to scale even, you know, faster. But I would have hired that talent sooner to give them an opportunity to learn the business as we did, because all of that work would have compounded and we'd be even further along. Um, and, uh, and we had the capital to do so. We had strong relationships with people whom we end up hiring eventually anyway, um, you know, even that early on. Um, and frankly, that was just sort of all missed time that we could have been making progress. We could have been scaling the business. And what were um, you thinking at the time to prevent you from doing that? And what do you know yeah. now that was actually, well, that's, that's what I just said, you know, like yeah. I, I, you know, I thought well, that, you know, we should just focus on, on the product, those partnerships, getting, you know, um, you know, at the you know, state level, at the publisher level, building a product um, to even enable the experience. Um, and at some point we have enough maturity there where we could always add that talent and, and, and you know, it take off. Um, and look, that still ends up happening to be the case. And we're fortunate because we have, you know, so much cash in the bank. We have a product with product market fit. We, we yeah. generate, we've generated revenue from day one. Um, and there's a lot of enthusiasm around our category, but, but truthfully, I would have, I would have done that differently. Um, you know, had I known what I know now. And, you know, this is a fast, this is an incredibly complex business model because at least it's, it feels like you have multi-stakeholders and this is sort of a multi-sided yep. marketplace. You have the publishers, you have the schools, your, your users actually aren't your customers. If I, if I'm understanding it correctly. And, yeah, and that community, it depends on, it depends on the, the business, the business. Um, so high school, is like a B2B product, college is like a B2C product, but, but it also has some B2B aspects of it too. And so, yeah, there's a lot of nuance. And so can you speak to that? Can you speak to, first of all, how did you convince the first schools to believe in the platform and sign up and participate? Because this is one of these things where when the, when the flywheel kicks in, it makes sense, but just getting that flywheel to start, how did you solve that problem, the flywheel initiation problem with the first schools? Yeah, so it wasn't necessarily a focus around getting the first schools. We had to get the first states. Yep. Um, that took us, uh, so, you know, we signed this deal with the NFHS. We start the company April, uh, January, January 9th, actually, January 9th, 2018. Um, signed this deal with the NFHS shortly after. Um, and then, um, and then you know, the NFHS essentially says, hey, um, our, our deal with the NFHS says, hey, if, if, if a state's going to do esports, they have to do it with us. And the NFHS has made us their official provider an exclusive provider for basically online and offline esports. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the NFHS can't force states to adopt esports immediately. So every state has their own board, their own process, their own calendar around, you know, when they're going to introduce sports and activities. And, and for the most part, none of them, um, you know, ever introduce something that they, they learn about within the first year. It normally is like they sit down, they have a couple board meetings that take place only a few times a year about, let's say, girls wrestling. And then once it's approved, they'll put it on a calendar to be added three years from now. And so we're asking them to like not only learn about esports, which has a ton of complexities in itself, that and this is it's an, it's an, uh, a sport that they don't understand, but also let us introduce it, you know, within months after them learning about it. Um, and this is also our first time ever running the league, and so it's super scary for them. And like educators struggle with change management, and so um, and so uh, 
And so, yeah, so like, I mean, that was, that was sort of the first process. We didn't focus on school. We focused on, um, on state. And, uh, and some of the things we did there is that, you know, the, the next month we went down to Atlanta and we put together an, uh, an esports symposium, we called it. And we brought 20 or something states down and they flew down on their own dime because we didn't have money at the time. Um, but that also showed their commitment to like being a part of the process. And, um, and they, they came down and they spent three days and we basically talked to them about esports, you know, a bunch of things that they had questions about. We took them to a game publisher. They got to see uh, and talk to people who make games, understand that there's real career opportunity to hear. We introduced them to, um, you know, the people in the pro scene and they understood like the career trajectory there as a player and a coach. Um, and that got them really excited. And then basically over the next, you know, whatever, a few months um, from March, frankly, even longer from March through August, we basically were on a road show talking to those same states, managing them through the funnel, teaching them more, answering more of their questions, as well as talking to their boards. And some of those boards will be as little as five people and as many as 20 people. And so, uh, so that, you know, you understand the complexity there because in many cases, that's a consensus driven board. Everyone needs to be on board with the decision. And so, um, and, and also there's just like a number of politics associated with that process. And so, um, so, uh, so yeah, eventually we get five states to decide to roll out esports uh, in the first season. And, um, and, uh, and then we just work with those states about, hey, how do we reach your schools? What's the best process in getting the word out? And we leverage channels that they own. Uh, we didn't really have internal capabilities to reach, uh, reach schools at that time, our players. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, most of it was CRM, so email. Um, and, uh, and it ended up working out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was very ad hoc um the first yeah. year and we were just like you know doing doing everything we whatever could. You, and and and, I just, and and that's a really important insight so there weren't any elegant hacks to shorten that sales cycle from three years it was just hustle and i think this is also a theme it was just sort it was of hustle. brute force yeah it was yeah. brute force and and i think that's very common with actually a lot of um marketplaces as well can you explain the business model and the revenue model because i think a lot of people don't realize that you can make money in esports sure. yeah. um and how, how it works yeah, so look, um, you know, while we focus on high school and college, um, um, we do have a broader vision beyond that. Um, and so I'm happy to also touch on that. Yeah. Because um, the business model will continue to evolve with every product that we build. Our high school product, we make money by char- uh, uh, on a seat-based model, $64 per player per season. We offer two seasons within the high school calendar year. So it ends up being 128 bucks per player per season. That's paid for by the school. Um, you know, schools will have, on average you know, 18 to 25 players, um, um, you know, per season who participate. So they end up having, you know, 30 something to 50 seats basically um, within, uh, or, you know, 27, um, uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah. Like 30 something to 50, uh, 50 seats uh, per uh, calendar school year. And, um, uh, and, uh, and yeah, at the collegiate level, we monetize by, um, uh, uh, by charging that same fee, but directly to the publisher. So publishers spend, um, you know, let's call it $64 per kid who plays. And for the end user, it ends up being free. Um, uh, and, uh, and you know, there's other opportunities to monetize sponsorship, media rights, et cetera, but we haven't tapped into any of that. And are there ever any tensions between serving your users, the students and the schools and these other constituents? And um, are there any insights that you want to share about when you're building a commercial business that's also synonymous with supporting a community, um, how that all, uh, how, how to manage those tensions? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's uh, our, the, one of the most challenging aspects of our business is, you know, that we're dealing with a lot of people with conflicting interests, yeah. you know, 
kids want to play games like Fortnite and Overwatch, but oftentimes the, the state may not think that that's appropriate. And it might not be the state association, but it could be the governor. And uh, this, the schools are built on some, you know, state ran our state funded fiber network. And so the governor essentially has leverage against the Department of Ed, who would typically be out of a sports, um, you know, any conversation around sports and activities. But now because, you know, it relies on the internet and the internet is funded by the Department of Ed and the governor has some opinion, the association has to bring down a hammer on stuff like that. And so we have to manage that, right? Because our business gives us the sort of commercial rights to do these things. Um, and we know that coaches, which ends up representing the school and then the players also want these things, but you know, they might not understand some of the, 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 um, you know, the nuance there, um, you know, from, you know, how things just operate behind the scenes. So, um, so yeah, look, it's a little bit like circus. Um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and one, it just takes deep knowledge of understanding who you're dealing with, um, who makes decisions within those environments, what the process looks like to get decisions approved or passed, um, and then, uh, and just, you know, a lot of conversations, um, and, and, you know, quality communication, um, uh, you know, to, to, to figure things out. It's, it's, you know, it's not easy. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and, you know, we figure it out every day and we make a ton of mistakes in that, in that realm. But, um, but I think we've done a really good job given our business has 30, 40 something partnerships, um, with, you know, different organizations and, and many for-profit companies. We've done a really good job at maintaining those relationships, although there are, you know, conflicting interests from all of those parties, um, even publishers, right? Like there's like, we work with multiple publishers who have games and competing categories. And, you know, we have to, you know, work with them to say, hey, everything that we do is going to be standard. Um, there's going to be a universal standard and you can't get any special treatment. Like many publishers don't even like that. And so, like we, um, you know, I think we've done a really good job at our team at, um, at understanding the conflict and where it exists and then managing against that. But truthfully, it's not easy. And I think any business built against uh, a BD structure like ours will face that. Yep. I think that's the tension and the value of, of trying to build something, which is a community platform and also a commercial enterprise. Do you, do you, do you face issues with parents who worry about no, having parents, their kids play, play no. Fortnite all day? No, parents, or, first off, uh, parents love us. Uh, parents love Fortnite as well, um, uh, by and large, uh, at least from, you know, our experience. Ultimately, look, parents want their kids to, um, to be able to have activities um, that they enjoy and, and can do so in a safe environment. Um, and they also want them to be recognized for talents that they have. And so if your kid is one of the best, let's call it Fortnite players in the country, and they can play in the league where they can earn prizes and scholarships, and they can play with people at their school and be coached from a, a technical and mental aspect of the game by some faculty member at the school that you trust or they trust, um, then that's, that's a win-win for a parent. It's the same reason parents introduce their kids to sports like football and basketball, um, so they can, you know, acquire all of those attributes um, that we find to be positive. Um, uh, uh, and so, yeah, and so parents, parents love uh, esports and they, they, uh, you know, they, they love the games that we introduce. And we obviously try to uh, continue to introduce games that we find are friendly for this environment. We don't, um, and, and also have a, um, a T for teen or lower ESRB rated. Um, and, and also just as an anecdotal story, I mean, you know, this is when I realized how impactful the work we were doing uh, is human moments like this, I guess. We had this parent who, had a, who has a son um, in Massachusetts. Their family's in Massachusetts. He plays for some high school in Massachusetts, like JV um, League of Legends team, I believe. And, um, and she, he never played in like in his entire life through high school. I mean, from like kid through high school, he's never played any sport. Um, 
barely like it has any like social life. And, and she's scrolling on YouTube one day, sees this video where someone was profiling me. And I guess they went to a school and also profiled him. And she found that her son was on this team. And so she was researching it, comes across this video of me, sees her son's in this video, comments on the video, no one responds, finds our information, reaches out to us. And, you know, we get back to her and she's like, hey, I'm going to, I'm just going to fly to LA to meet you guys to talk in person. She flies across the country with her son to LA on her own dime, literally to come in for an hour and say to us repeatedly um, uh, how impactful we've been, you know, the work that we do has been, you know, to her son and her family. And it's so crazy. The first 30 minutes I wasn't around, I was in the conference room. I walk out the conference room, come out to shake her hand, reach my hand out. Literally her and her son are just pouring tears. And it was, <laughs> it was so insane because I was like, I get really uncomfortable when people cry. So I'm like, I'm like, uh, could you, could you please, could you please stop crying? <laughs> that's but, when you uh, just have to say thank you, D- Delay. Yeah. That's when you just, you just have to say gra- you have to have, Yo, just have was, gratitude. But I yes. felt like a rock star a little bit, but uh, but uh, but no, you know, it was just uh, it was such a you know profound moment. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, um, and I, you know, I'm obviously super grateful for that moment. We've had tons of other moments like that, uh, not as grand, but. Um, but where parents express their gratitude, grandmothers, grandfathers express their gratitude, um, you know, for what, you know, for the opportunities that we're providing for these kids. And so, um, you know, um, you know, moments like that, you know, really keep us focused on our mission, which is, you know, we want to build this playground um, for kids, for all gamers, frankly, of any age to come and connect with their friends and play in competition. Um, And we want them to be able to do so safely. And we want them to be recognized for, for their talents, their passions, uh, and we want to bring these communities together. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, love stories like that. And, uh, and, you know, we continue to work hard every day to, to get more of those stories. That, I mean, that is pure gold. I oftentimes say, you know, that you're building something that's exceptional when people tell other people about it. When somebody flies across the country on their own dime with, the, with their kid, that's beyond special. That's, you know, that you're hitting a wellspring that's insane, of a phenomenon. That's, that's insane. That's, yeah. That's really that's, insane. Uh, um, I, I would actually love to keep diving in on this and we may, but I want I, this, there um, is an important issue that the students also have asked us to, to um, shed light on, which is we're going through an important moment in our country right now. And the, these issues of identity and racial justice are really at the fore. And I would be remiss if I didn't get your perspective on this issue. So I'm curious about how significant of a role for you, do you think race has played in your entrepreneurial journey or your founder journey? Yeah, look, uh, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, look, I think I've been, um, well, from an identity standpoint, like, first off, I like to say that I'm, I'm extremely proud to be black and to be a black entrepreneur and to represent the black, you know, brown community um, in tech and gaming where there's, there's few of us. Um, and, uh, and I feel privileged um, and humbled and motivated to succeed um, given that I'm, you know, one of few people um, who raised as much money at, at this age, um, you know, uh, from that community um, and, uh, and had this much success. And so, um, look, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly, you know, more difficult, I'll say. Um, um, and frankly, I think, you know, even for me, I think that I, it's not as difficult as it is for Black women, Black and Brown women. I think, you know, Black and Brown women probably face the toughest challenge in, you know, building companies, uh, certainly raising capital, um, because they they sort of get hit with the double minority, right? They're woman and they're black or brown. Um, and uh, and for me, at least, I get the privilege of being a man, um, which uh, which uh, there's some privilege there. But look, it's difficult. Um, 
Um, and uh, luckily, like, you know, I'm able to have investors um, who, um, who care less about the color of my skin and partners, by the way, as well, who care less about the color of my skin and just more about, you know, my intellect, my, my drive, um, the things that I'm working on and, and also just my integrity and character. Um, we've had some challenges, you know, in our business, just given, um, you know, the, the, the audience of stakeholders where, you know, some folks have not worked with us because they've said that, you know, a black person runs the business. And that's obviously super challenging. Um, uh, and it's, this isn't from like a for-profit side, but, um, you know, we face this, you know, um, you know, with stakeholders on the, on the education side of the business. And I think that that's, that's obviously tough. Um, and, and we don't, we don't, we don't lean super heavily into that. And we don't even talk about that a lot externally. Um, we sort of, we sort of, you know, push through it, but, um, you know, I'm proud that the team continues to, to support me and support each other and, and continue to dedicate themselves to our mission and never let, you know, racism get in the way of, of what we're building. And, and we're a majority minority company. Uh, most of the people who work at our company are either of color or, or women or, um, or some, you know, form of minority. And so we're super excited about that. And, uh, and we want to continue to, to hire people that, that, you know, represent my community and other communities um, to, to help us, you know, bring this company into life. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that was a very general question. And so hopefully that's that general response also. I appreciate it. And I think it's a difficult thing to talk about also just because it's, you only have one perspective. Like I can't wake up in the morning and not be Indian. That's yeah, sort of sure. what, what I am. And so it's a hard question to even ask to compare. But I also think that makes it even more important for us to have these dialogues and these conversations, especially these stories around if, if you have people that choose not to work with you because of the color of your skin. I don't think that that, that is something that people realize is still persisting, or at least certainly I haven't. Um, is there anything else or is, what else don't people realize that you've, you think about the experience of being black or, or just being a minority in the process of entrepreneurship that we should be shedding more light into? Is there anything else that you yeah, can share? I, mean, look, I don't think that there's like a laundry list that like, yeah. you know, I could sort of recite, like there's just inherent bias um, that, you know, that I face that, um, that other entrepreneurs who look like me have face um, because of just who they are. I mean, I've had, I've, I've been in meetings, you know, with my team where people would dismiss me um, uh, and sort of, you know, revert back to someone else on the team who may be a white male. Um, not, not knowing that, you know, it's ultimately my decision. I've, I've had, you know, potential partners that we, we've talked to who we've, you know, been able to uncover, you know, our races who, you know, said to, to, I don't want to be on the phone if Delane's on the phone. Like, you know, there's been like, there's been like a number of incidents that we've had, um, just given the nature of our business that, uh, that are, you know, just frankly unfortunate. Um, and, uh, and I think, I think the first time it ever happened in this business, I got, it sort of got under my skin, but, um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, this guy, Laz, who, um, who's Cuban, in fact, um, and was one of our earliest employees, he's no longer with the company, he started his own company. Um, but, uh, he, uh, I remember I like walked from my desk cause like this happened, we're in a conference room and like, you know, we kind of took a breather and I like walked from my desk and I was just like taking a walk cause I was thinking, and I was just so like, you know, I forgot. It, it felt like for me, I, 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 we had so much success so quick. I forgot that, um, that this could be a factor in, you know, the business that I was trying to build, given the audience that I'm serving, um, which ends up being this really broad audience. But that's a, there's a subset where that exists there that we have to deal with. Um, and they have that opinion of, of black and brown people. And last walked up to me. And honestly, I had tears in my eyes. And he, uh, he said, yo, um, no one can build this company but you. 
and I'm like, I'm on the journey. And from that moment, um, you know, I've never, I've never let it, it obviously bothers me, but I've never let it get under my skin. And, and we sort of just keep moving at the company. Like we don't, uh, we don't, we don't even hold it against people. We don't, uh, we don't, we don't even, you know, you know, fight it. We just, uh, we just sort of keep moving forward. But, um, and we do our part too. We try to do our part at least, um, to, to make sure that, uh, you know, the people following us either, you know, in the gaming space or, or other entrepreneurs, um, you know, of color who are trying to build companies, given the responsibility that we have, given how much capital and success that we've had, um, we recognize that responsibility. We try to do our part uh, by delivering so that they get the, that they get opportunities. And we try to make sure that the people we associate with, at least from an investor level, they represent the, the things that we believe in. When I raised capital from, for Play Versus in our Series A, I didn't take a term sheet from um, any investor um, who wanted to lead unless they could accommodate two things, two contingencies. One, um, uh, they had other Black founders in their portfolio. And I was very direct in asking them that even in our earliest conversations. And then two, um, they were okay with us having a woman uh, represent the independent seat on our board when it came time to fill that seat. Um, and you had to be okay with that. You had to be willing to even write that in for me to take a term sheet from you uh, and consider you even to be an investor. And so, um, you know, we try to surround ourselves with people who believe in the things that we believe in. And for those that we, that we encounter who don't, um, you know, um, uh, you know, we recognize that and we sort of, we sort of, you know, keep pushing forward. I mean, you are so right that it is, there, there are far too few black founders and, 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 and board members and VCs uh, that, than there should be. And, um, and for any either black or just brown or minority founders that are fighting the fight and going through um, the entrepreneurial gauntlet, and, and having similar setbacks that, they're, that they confront, any advice or guidance that you would give them as they're going through the process? Yeah, look, find your tribe um, uh, that you can lean on to, to, to support you. Um, the journey's tough. Um, don't get discouraged and, and know that there are people out there um, who, uh, who you know, value you for what you bring to the table and, and you know, don't discount you for the color of your skin or your background and, uh, and find those people and, uh, and keep going. Like we just have to keep pressing forward. Like we can't let, you know, racists hold us down or suppress us. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and didn't vote also too. like one, like speak about these things. Um, cause I think that that's also really important. Um, you know, like to, to have these conversations and, and don't feel uncomfortable having these tough conversations. Um, and, uh, and, and don't try to do so by just like finding that one black friend and like, you know, asking them all of these things as if they represent every black person on the planet. Because, you know, it was interesting when Black Lives Matter and like all of the protests <laughs> started to happen. You don't understand how many calls or texts, yeah. emails I got like, hey, can you hop on a call? I just want to talk. I'm like, I had to tell people like, and I'm a very direct person. And so people, people know that about me. I'm like, look, I'm not the one black friend that you like, that you have that you're about to like bombard with all of these questions. Like if you want to, get involved and you want to, um, you know, be a part of the movement and one, you should like just acknowledge that, uh, that, you know, maybe, maybe there are things that you don't understand that you want to learn from. And then there are conversations that are happening. You should go and be a part of those. And then you should also, um, have more of these conversations and also encourage like your other friends in your circle who may not be of color to, if they want to be a part of that community to do so as well. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in, in cases where you can donate or put your money where your mouth is, like, you should do that as well. Um, uh, and, uh, but, like, don't, don't, like, just email me all day with questions about, like, you know, how do Black people feel about everything? Like, you know, I don't know, you know, like, uh, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, no, I think that that's, I think, look, we, we have to, um, we have to just keep pressing forward. 
um, um, you know, find people who support us, work with people who support us, um, don't shy away from these issues, hire people who look like you, give them opportunity, and then hopefully there's some compounding effect as many more of us have success that, uh, that you know, the, some of the stigma, at least in tech and venture that exists around, you know, black people not having roles at venture funds or not being funded or lacking opportunity because of whatever in existence pipeline, non-existent pipeline problem, those things go away. Um, and, uh, and that's like one of our, you know, primary missions at our company too, is that given that we're a majority minority company, we feel even more pressure to be successful because we know that when we are, we'll create um, um, a wave of wealth that'll flow back into, um, you know, minority communities. And then hopefully more companies get started through that wealth, more opportunities get funded. And then there's like some, you know, flywheel effect that happens, you know, just from play versus. And so that motivates us. Hopefully that motivates other people. And, uh, and uh, you know, like just keep going. Oh, I think that's so powerful, Delane. I think you're going to be creating movements on multiple levels. Um, uh, and so, Delane, um, thank you so much for your time. I know how precious it is. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.